Hey guys, I got a word to deliver today and I didn't expect before that I would have yet another faith related episode, but God wanted me to get on here and talk about homosexuality and he's been super loud about it. There is no way I could have escaped this if I tried. Literally every day he's been on my ass pushing me about completing this and when God speaks, you gotta move. What the Lord specifically wants is for this episode to edify a group of people who have been attacked and oppressed in his name. LGBTQ plus folks, we have been targeted by individuals and institutions who have abused God's name, the word, and the church as excuses to persecute us. But God wanted me to let you know that that's neither his will nor his command. He doesn't support it. He is for you as much as he is for anyone else. And in this moment, he wants to lift you up and make sure you know that his kingdom belongs to you too. And your gay ass doesn't have to deny the way he made you in order to claim it. This is a word built to encourage you and to educate all so that all may know where he stands. And I know that as a result, it's a word that will confuse some and anger others. I don't expect everyone to understand this word or receive it with open arms. In fact, I expect that many will call bullshit and accuse me of blasphemy and others will gossip about how I'm crazy or think so highly of myself that God would have relationship and communicate with me directly. <laughs> like, listen, truth be told, if those people had the spiritual capacity to hear from God on this topic and to understand his position on us, not only would he not have tasked low old me with addressing this, but LGBTQ oppression wouldn't be an issue. So there would be nothing to address in the first place. So in the immortal words of Raven Baxter, haters gon' hate, potatoes gon' potate, this message came from the Holy Spirit, and if you feel a way about it, grab a number and take it directly to him in prayer because I'm not the one or the two. I'm not that person. Per. Now that we've managed expectations, let's get started. When I talked about my testimony in episode 7, I was very open and transparent about all the ratchet shit I had been doing and how God clocked the shit out of me and then worked on me and my faith and transformed me into a living sacrifice. But what I didn't do was make the space to address my sexuality in relation to the church and my walk with Christ. Again, you know, I was very transparent about how much I love to fuck guys. I kept it all the way real on that. I loudly and proudly identify as bisexual, and I'm pretty sure somebody's confused as to how I can stand a God who supposedly hates the gays. <laughs> according to popular belief among Christians and non-Christians alike. The Bible is God-inspired but ultimately written by man, and men have their own lenses, biases, and perspectives. We know that God communicates with us in different ways, and even despite our best intentions, it is possible to get things wrong. It is possible to mistranslate text, just ask anyone who's ever studied a language. It's possible to misinterpret signs and confirmations even for those strong in the spirit. It's possible to think that you're in alignment with God's will, but be moving in ways completely to the contrary. And it's also possible to know what God wants us to do, but be disobedient anyway. We're also all human. Someone can have spiritual gifts like the ability to prophesy through dreams and visions, but struggle in another area like envy or greed. You can be super loving towards others as God commands us and still struggle to love yourself as God sees you. Or you can extend grace, mercy, and love to those who walk like, talk like, and look like you, but decide that those who don't aren't as deserving. And that's a major difference between Jesus and his detractors, the Pharisees, who conspired to have him crucified because of the way Jesus disrupted their corruption and gatekeeping through the gospel. That's why I was so careful in preparing the last episode when I spoke in God's name and delivered that word about Israel and Palestine, because speaking on behalf of God is not to be taken lightly, and I only claimed that once God literally made it loud and clear to me that I needed to proceed and that this is what I should say. 
So why, knowing that even the most anointed of people are not infallible, do we act like these sacred texts transcribed and compiled by many men over many millennia and then translated infinitely many times since then are not in at least a small way marked by the imperfections of any of these people? Some pastors support the current state of Israel and its actions out of allegiance to God. Others condemn the state of Israel and its genocidal agenda against Palestinians out of allegiance to God. What the pursuit of justice and an obedience to God means to each of these groups is completely different. And believe me, there is a right and wrong here. God was super clear about that. And yet each supposedly believes that they are acting with the best intentions and in alignment with what God wants for them. So if we know that even the church is divided on many important issues and has differences in the interpretations and application of even the fundamentals of this faith, why then do we act like some scripture and sermons haven't been influenced by the selective, biased, and sometimes wrong interpretations of the individuals translating or preaching? Let me be clear. Contrary to what you think you know, God does not hate anyone for their gayness. I don't care what you heard or who told you or what you thought you read, and we're going to get into that later. But that simply is a bold-faced lie straight from the pit of hell. Let me tell you a little story. I knew since preschool that I was attracted to men and women. My entire upbringing, I had to try to mask my sexuality as much as possible. And I'm not going to act like I was the most straight-passing person in the world. I absolutely was not. But I also wasn't the gayest-looking motherfucker in the room or the gayest-sounding either. And you do what you can with what you got. And, you know, like just like with job interviews and in corporate environments, code switching absolutely is a thing. So you can dial the gay up and down, different degrees depending on the environment. So I had to try to mask my sexuality for most of my life. And I existed in this mess trying to understand why God would hate me if he made me this way. Because Lord knows I didn't choose to be this way. That's another thing. People got to stop acting like this shit is a choice. I spent my entire upbringing wanting to be straight so fucking bad and hating myself because I wasn't. Nobody would purposely opt into a life of social oppression, of discrimination and depression uh, when there's a much safer and much more socially acceptable and status affording and a peaceful option like heterosexuality. For fuck's, <laughs> for fuck's sake, not a single one of you straights would choose to wake up gay a day in your life because you could not handle being treated the way you treat us. Period. Anyway, so I grew up hating myself and it took a lot of work, but eventually I came to terms with who I was and who I was becoming. And I had an understanding that God had blessed me immensely throughout my life and continued to do so despite my same-sex attraction. So clearly it wasn't an issue for him and it couldn't be an issue for me because that wasn't something I could change. So after God dragged this shit out of me in summer 2018 and I started pursuing a realer, more intentional relationship with him, this is the attitude that I carried going into it from when I began going to my church in like October, November of 2018 uh, through to my first Bible study from January to like March or April 2019. It wasn't an issue for God, so it wasn't an issue for me. And I didn't have a problem with anybody. Again, my church calls itself Church for the Unchurched. It's supposed to be accepting of everyone. The guys in my Bible study were generally cool people. I was transparent about my sexual struggles. I didn't particularly throw my sexuality out there, but I wasn't exactly trying to hide it either. Not that it could be hidden anyway, but you know, I was just being me. So now here we were, and this was May 15th, 2019. And one of the brothers from my weekly Bible study put in the group chat that his job had given him free Yankees tickets and they were up for grabs. So a few of us went and it was chill. You know, it was my first Yankees game. It was a doubleheader with the Orioles. The seats were amazing. We were super close to the field. It was really cool. Uh, afterwards, a few of us went to link up with a couple of other fellas also from the Bible study. Um, they were at the cigar lounge down the street. And I had smoked so many blunts in my life, but I never once smoked a cigar. So I was looking forward to it. 
Now, remember, before this, I had a toxic relationship with my last job and I spent all my time working. So now that I had quit and had more time, I'd been praying about building community and friendships, especially with other brothers in Christ. So I thought this was God coming through for me. Psych! I thought. So at the cigar lounge, we ended up in a private space downstairs because one of them had that kind of relationship with the people who worked there. So it was just the six of us downstairs. And at the beginning, I heard one of the guys mention to another something about a church meeting the next day. But he was being really weird about it. So I asked him what it was that he was you know, talking about. And after the lightest pressing, he hesitantly told me that basically our pastor was calling a meeting and it didn't seem clear to him, but it was something about how like the leaders of each church ministry would have to contractually commit to abiding by certain rules in their lives in order to serve God in these positions. And that somehow part of this was that gay people could serve at our church, but not in a leadership capacity. Uh, here we go. So I was like, excuse me? And, you know, my questioning this quickly turned into five straight men bashing my existence, questioning my rights and my humanity, and debating my place in church, society, and the world. Over the course of two hours, these quote-unquote men of God casually yet crassly tried to justify why God shouldn't be able to use me on the basis of my sexuality, why somehow they as sinners were better fit for God's blessings and leadership, and a lot of other bullshit. Some of them argue that, sure, God loves gays, but he doesn't condone our quote-unquote lifestyle. First of all, <laughs> sexual orientation, much like age, race, or sex, is a characteristic, not a lifestyle. But if we were to entertain this mess, I would love to know what the mythical monolithic gay lifestyle that they referred to entails exactly. Because whatever that would be, I'm sure the monolithic straight lifestyle at least matches it. Are we talking about premarital sex, divorce, adultery? Because y'all so often seem to use the excuse of the sanctity of marriage, but y'all had the market on marriage cornered for thousands of years and have done a perfect job of disrespecting it all by yourselves. So truly, what is this lifestyle that you claim is so exclusive for gay people? Read, honey. <laughs> One of the guys literally tried to compare homosexuality to pedophilia. How dare you? I shut that shit down so quick because I know you fucking lying. As if statistically, most pedophiles aren't straight men. Okay. In fact, several studies have confirmed that gay men are no more attracted to children than straight men, and this rhetoric of claiming that homosexuality and pedophilia are similar, or that gays are a danger to children, is an ages-old trope used to discriminate against homosexuals and deny us rights from workplace to marriage equality. If you hate the gays, just say that. But ain't nobody checking for no kids. Some of the guys argued that homosexuality is a human defect that it's a product of sin, specifically of the fall of man, as recounted in Genesis. This take completely ignores that same-sex sexual behavior is common not just in humans, but has also been recorded across at least 1,500 animal species. In An Alternative Hypothesis for the Evolution of Same-Sex Sexual Behavior in Animals, published in December 2019's Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, Monk et al. points out that scientists currently lack comprehensive knowledge of how much more common same-sex sexual behavior is across species, largely because these behaviors have historically been regarded as irrelevant and have only been recorded incidentally. In sum, we don't know more not because of biology, but because of our biases. To act like same-sex sexual behavior is exclusive to humans and a product of human action? That's not it. One of the guys said that allowing gay people in church leadership would cause others in the church to stumble and that it would influence other gays into thinking that they didn't have to turn away from their gayness. Bish way? Bish way? That they would look at us as a model and think that it's okay for them to be this way because we decided it for ourselves. <laughs> it's funny how we can argue for a representation of literally any other group, but God forbid a faggot want to glorify Jesus and serve the church. 
Not to mention how ridiculous it is, the idea that people would think that they don't have to, you know, quote unquote, turn away from their gayness. As I said before, homosexuality is not a choice. Your heterosexuality wasn't a choice either. People have control over their actions, but I don't understand why you would assume that anyone has control over their attractions. This is not Drake nonstop. You can't just flip a switch and be like, hey, I prefer Punani now. You know, ooh, it's the poom poom for me. <laughs> So I don't know what this hypothetical turning away from your gayness is supposed to mean or how it's even supposed to be achieved. Mind you, I had previously told them that it's not a choice. And one of the guys said himself that it's not a choice. But, you know, one of the ringleaders of this whole thing said later on that he wasn't sure if it was genetic or if it was a choice. And it's like, you are not listening. An LGBTQ person is better poised to speak on gayness and anti-gay discrimination in the same way an old person is poised to speak on their age and ageism, in the same way a woman is best poised to speak on womanhood and misogyny, and a black person is best poised to speak on blackness and racism, especially anti-blackness. For fuck's sake, this is literally mansplaining or white-splaining, but for gay people. It's straight-splaining. I don't have time for it. One claim that gays love to pick and choose what scriptures to apply, despite that being an action that literally all people do, and they had all taken on this attitude of, you know, fuck it, this is what the word says, despite all admitting that not a single one of them actually knew what the Bible says about homosexuality. Girl. Really? And it was so ironic, because for a group of guys who were so homophobic, they orchestrated this whole circle jerk and enjoyed every minute of it. They legit use this as an opportunity to flex their Christian superiority, coordinating an oppressive attack all the while claiming to embody the tenets of Jesus. One of them said some shit and was like, oh, you know, I know it sounds harsh. I know it doesn't sound gracious, but and another one literally interrupted to be like, no, bro, you did say it with grace. And it's like there is literally not an ounce of grace in this basement right now. But y'all swear this is what Jesus would do. Bet. Again, this somehow went on for two, almost two and a half hours. It was one of the most toxic situations I've ever been in. Looking back, I'm like, why didn't I just leave? But even so, then what? You know, they thought they were right. My leaving could easily be framed as a dramatic exit because I got mad at the quote unquote truth. People would be talking and spreading shit afterwards. I'd still have to see these people at least every Sunday. And there would have been no one to push back on their many erroneous assumptions. But the whole thing was gross. Uh, I remember one of them joked that I wish I had a blunt at the moment, which... I'm sure would have made that trash ass situation better, but having been in my Bible study, they all knew about the toxic dependence that I used to have on Bud and how I literally had just been able to quit barely three months before and was trying to restructure my life and my habits and align myself with what God had wanted for me. So it was like, really? Like, we're really going to joke about my old toxic coping mechanisms right now? Um, the gag is, they had the nerve to think that they did this all out of brotherly love. <laughs> That is funny. To his credit, one of the guys did end up pushing that whatever the case was, the church couldn't single out this quote unquote sin, uh, that our church had to keep that same energy with all the other sins people and ministries or leadership are responsible for, which is more than I expected from any of them, you know, although the others didn't exactly agree. As they walked up the basement stairs to leave, one of the guys stayed behind and expressed that he could see how something like this entire incident, which he literally just participated in, could turn me away from the church and he didn't want that to happen. It's kind of funny because a month later, then he actually texted me to quote unquote check in uh, saying that he hadn't seen me at church in a while. And I was like, I've literally been at church every Sunday for the past month, except today because I have family in town. To which he replied that he actually hadn't been in church for a couple weeks because he'd been traveling. So that was probably it. And then he asked if I was good, though. But I'm like. Tell me you feel guilty without telling me you feel guilty. Like, talk about projection. Oh, I haven't seen... Boy! <laughs> anyway, so when I left the cigar lounge, 
Troubled was not the word. The whole thing was a lot. It was traumatic as fuck. The guys literally made it seem like no matter what I did, I wasn't going to be enough for God. Like, by continuing to be who I knew God made me to be, I was actively saying, fuck God on some Cartman shit. Whatever, whatever, I do what I want. Listen, they came at me not with compassion, but with condescension, with condemnation. They figuratively beat the shit out of me in a five-on-one, and I felt like absolute shit. Count the ten, let me breathe, let me see if my therapist is on speed dial. On my way home, I called one of my best friends, Altia. I've known Altia forever. We literally did fourth grade through twelfth grade together, except for sixth. And um, God was also putting her through a transformation at the same time. I'd invited her to my church like a month after I'd started. So we were going together and we were both getting involved with serving and um, Bible studies and classes. And we were supporting one another. You know, the word says iron sharpens iron. So she had all the necessary context, not just about me and where I was at in my life and my faith, but also about the church and every single one of these children of God who showed their asses there that evening. So Altia heard me out and she helped talk me through it. But I still felt like shit. The next morning, we were texting and Altia sent me 1 John chapter 2, verses 9-11, to 11, which reads, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. That was nice because it felt like each of these three verses specifically addressed what had just happened, even down to the part about there being nothing to make those who live in the light stumble. Remember that one of the guys claimed that the gays would make other church members stumble. So yeah, that scripture was nice, but it was about them, not about me. So sure, it was satisfying, but I still felt like shit. I literally spent that entire next day on the couch, unable to move. Um, it was that serious. This condemnation and sugar-coated hatred was hanging over me. You know, I would cry here and there. The whole thing was depressing. And through tears, I asked God to give me something, to give me some sign, anything, to send me a message that spoke directly to this and confirm that I wasn't doing anything wrong and there was nothing wrong with me. And I just waited and waited until I'd realized that I'd already gotten it. That morning, my mom had randomly texted me Galatians 3.28. She sent it at five something that morning. I had only fallen asleep a half hour before and she literally had no idea what I had just gone through. That entire day I had ignored that text because I knew it was going to be a Bible verse and I wasn't really in the mood. But it turns out the answer to all of that day's prayers had literally been sitting in my inbox before I had even asked for it. Bruh. Because the Lord knew exactly what I needed. That's a word for somebody. Preach. I had never read Galatians 3.28 before and it empowered me so much, especially given the context from the few verses that preceded. Starting at verse 24, it reads, So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Basically, in these verses, Paul states that we're not bound to the Levitical laws, some of which supposedly condemn homosexuality. We'll debunk that in a moment. Bear with me. But we're not saved by Levitical law, but through faith in Jesus, period. As long as we have faith in him, we're all set. And if we're in Christ, there are no differences from one person to the next that determine our status. As long as we remain in him, we are all heirs to the promises God has for us. When I tell you, I felt so vindicated. 
Because what are the odds that my mom sent me this scripture right after I had fallen asleep, having known nothing about this situation, and somehow it addressed the situation so perfectly? It was just wild. And I just, listen, when I prayed in thanksgiving to God about this, I felt the spirit come through in that room. And that was the ultimate confirmation for me that the scripture was God affirming me in the face of everything I'd just gone through. And that's the thing. Listen, God convicts, but he does not condemn. He'll make you feel some type of way so you know you're wrong about something, but that's a chance to address that behavior. Condemnation, however, is a whole different scenario. It's designed to make you feel like the most worthless piece of shit, like there is no fixing your situation and no hope for you at all. You may as well quit whatever. You may as well quit your life while you're ahead because what's the use? That is condemnation and that comes from the enemy. The enemy is a master manipulator. He knows the word of God better than anybody but God himself and twists it to his advantage. He also uses people to hurt one another. And what better way to prevent people from having relationship with God than to inflict pain through God's own people? His was a multi-pronged isolation strategy. Because not only did this incident seek to separate me from the community of God, it also sought to weaken my relationship and separate me from God himself by attributing these people's words and actions to God in an attempt to make me think that I was absolute trash. And in turning away from God, you lose out on fulfilling the purpose and experiencing the promises that God has planned for your life. I talked in my testimony in episode 7 about how in this time I was going through spiritual warfare Satan was big mad, big, big mad, that I was resisting every single vice that I had previously been entrenched in, and nothing was working for him. I had gone months without smoking, and I was relying on God instead of running to self-medication. He was showering me with opportunities for easy ass, and I wasn't taking the bait at all. So at this time, Satan was attacking me, and aside from turning up the notch on temptation, he would appear to me in dreams and cause me to have the most evil and perverse nightmares in an attempt to scare the shit out of me and break me down. And it didn't work because God is my strength, but this cigar lounge situation was just one of a long list of attacks. I felt like Nicki Minaj. They be like, yo, what the fuck is it gonna take to get rid of this bitch? You can't get rid of me, bitch. I'm not going nowhere. I'm not going no fucking where. That Sunday, I tried talking to one of the main guys from the convo and told him about how God had it play out, but he was unmoved. It was like talking to a brick wall. He ended up apologizing several months later, but not for what he said, more so how he said it, which honestly, I was asleep on, but I didn't care because first of all, I wasn't waiting for his validation on the case that God closed. And secondly, one of the verses that God gave me in the days that followed was Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Which basically means, caring what niggas think is a trap, trust God and you're good. And reminding myself of that was super liberating and continues to be so to this day. I know what time it is. They want to try to dim my light so their light can shine bright. But you know what? It ain't gonna work. Anyway, so this guy and I continue to share spaces within the church. I've genuinely prayed for this person on prayer calls where it would be only like three or four of us on the line. As a matter of fact, I'm still praying for him right now. Um, but that's literally only by the grace of God, because if it weren't for him, if it weren't for God and his grace, what grace could I have to emulate? Like, what grace would I know? What grace would I have to display? And why would I display it? When I could just be like, whatever, nigga, fuck you, and da 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 you know? And I think that's an important point to make. Gay people have to have so much grace with people in society and just everyone in general. And that's not by choice. 
In being part of any marginalized community, you have to have a lot more patience and grace with people for the simple fact of the bullshit they put you through. Whether you're poor, whether you're an ethnic minority, whether you're disabled, whatever the case may be. And the more marginalized layers you have to your identity, the more intersections there are between these groups, the more layers of bullshit you have to deal with. To dramatically illustrate the point, there is no, absolutely no questioning that a poor black, gay, disabled, trans woman living on Skid Row has significantly more prejudice and significantly more tangible societal barriers to overcome than a rich, straight, white, cisgender man living in fucking Calabasas. There's just no questioning that. And if you try to tell me that that's not true, I'm going to tell you you're full of shit. How do I know? Because you would never trade places with her. A Freaky Friday type of situation would end you. You could have been the biggest atheist and your ass would be on your knees provided that your disability allow it to begin with, um, <laughs> begging God to switch you back. So I ended up meeting with my pastor about this a couple weeks later, and he explained that the leadership meeting was actually in response to the past mishandling of LGBTQ people by church staff. <laughs> LOL. I told him what happened with the guys, and he affirmed me and my sexuality and how God made me to be this way. He told me that they had acted straight up pharisaic, which was true. You know, the whole cigar lounge convo was giving Matthew 7 verses 3 to 5. Before you come at me for the speck in my eye, worry about the plank in yours. Niggas will have a whole two by four coming out that cornea and want to talk about the next person. I know you fucking lying. Respectfully. And we got into a discussion about who God can use in positions of leadership because if you remember, the guys were trying to justify why God couldn't use gays in leadership. And now this is one of my favorite discussion points because anybody who's actually read the Bible knows that God picked the most ratchet and unqualified people to do the greatest things. Moses was a murderer. The man had a mean stutter. He couldn't talk to save his life. And yet God chose his assassinating ass, his ebony, 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 that's all folks, head ass, to lead the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt and toward the promised land. To freedom! <laughs> he was the one that God chose to facilitate the relationship between God and his people, who God, according to Exodus 34, made radiate with light after their meetings to the point where Moses had to start wearing a veil so that people wouldn't be blinded. The same man who interceded on behalf of Israel and convinced God not to wipe out the people when God became enraged at their wicked ways. King David? David was the man who saw Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop and said, I need me a piece of that boom boom. Sent for her and got Shorty pregnant and then didn't want her husband, who was the general in his army, to find out, so he set him up to die in battle. David did that. And yet the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. And God still used him for his own glory. Peter, Peter was ratchet as hell. His name was actually Simon, but while he was still ratchet, Jesus named him Peter because it means rock. And Peter and his faith in Christ were to be the foundation on which the church would be built. This was the same Peter who took a nap when Jesus asked him to pray the night he knew he would be arrested. The same Peter who took the tuli out when 12 showed up to arrest Jesus and cut a soldier's whole ear off with his sword. The same Peter who then pulled a Mariah and said, I don't know him, a whopping three times when asked if he was a disciple of Jesus because he feared for his life. And yet this was the Peter who God chose to establish his kingdom here on earth. And Paul... Listen, St. Pablo was on his Escobar. The man was basically a mob boss. He hated Jesus so much that he vowed to wipe out the church and actively persecuted and hunted down Christ's followers. And yet this was the man that God decided to humble and wipe clean and not only make him an apostle, but make him the most dedicated one, using him to spread the gospel to many nations and having him influence half the books that would later become the New Testament. These are the ratchet motherfuckers God used. These are the church's heroes. These are the men Christianity glorifies, the men who are afforded the utmost grace by the institution and its followers despite their many egregious sins and violations of God's commandments. 
And yet, when it comes to other groups like LGBT folks, the church suddenly wants to act holier than thou. Listen, people got a serious problem in that we place our own limitations on God and it's a pathetic display of arrogance and faithlessness to act like the creator is bound by the small-mindedness of his creation, like the God we call almighty somehow can't make possible what to us is the seemingly impossible. So listen, we're going to shift gears in this edification journey right now, this little edification party we're having. So far, I've testified about how God uplifted me in the midst of homophobic Christian attack, but we know that that's not going to be enough for the public to conclude that God doesn't have beef with the gays. Enter Robert K. Neuse, the James C. Scarter S.J. slash Bank One Distinguished Professor of the Humanities and Chair of Religious Studies Department at Loyola University, New Orleans. Professor Neuse received his Ph.D. from Vanderbilt University in the area of Old Testament, and is the author of 12 books and approximately 80 articles in the field of biblical studies. He's been at Loyola since 1980 and teaches courses including Introduction to World Religions, New Testament as Literature, The Ancient Mind, Old Testament as Literature, Hebrew Prophets, and Law, Ancient World. In 2015, News published Seven Gay Texts, Biblical Passages Used to Condemn Homosexuality. Uh, He published it in Biblical Theology Bulletin, Volume 45, Number 2. In this 20-page research thesis saturated with sources, Noose analyzes the seven scriptures that Christians often lean on as pillars of homophobia and argues that they do not refer to free, loving, homosexual relationships, but that they instead condemn rape, cultic prostitution, male prostitution, pederasty, and the ISIS cult in Rome. I actually corresponded with Professor Noose and invited him to discuss his research on the podcast. He wasn't able to join, but he was supportive. God bless him and his work. So I'm going to do my best to synthesize, paraphrase, explore, present some of the points that he makes in an attempt to do this topic justice because absolutely everyone should have access to this research. The first text Noose explores is an interaction between Noah and his son Ham in Genesis 9 verses 20 to 27. And personally, while this text is used to condemn homosexuality, it's not one of the main ones that I've come across. I think it's the least substantive one, and I have a lot to cover here, so I'm just going to skip this one and maybe make a TikTok about it in the coming days. Let's move on to Sodom and Gomorrah. One of the texts most often used by Christians to condemn homosexuality is Genesis 19, specifically verses 1 through 11. They tell the story of two angels who visited the city of Sodom. A man named Lot saw them in the city square and insisted that they stay at his home where he would make them a feast and be a most hospitable host. But before the angels went to sleep, all the men in the town surrounded the house and demanded that Lot give up his guests to them so that they quote unquote may know them. In this case, the men don't just want the angels to come outside for a chat. Nah. So that they may know them, here is a euphemism for sex, specifically sexual assault. Guys, the men of Sodom were trying to gang rape the angels. Just (laughs) beyond unhinged. Now, Lot begged them not to be wicked and instead offered the men his two virgin daughters so that they may leave the angels alone. The men were offended at this proposition and threatened to do Lot dirtier than the angels. And just as the men were pressing on him and trying to break down the door, the angels snatched up Lot into the house and struck all the men blind so that they couldn't even find the door. Professor Neuse in his text observes that there are extensive similarities between this text in Genesis 19 and the text in Judges 19. And instead of reading you the exhaustive 25 bullet point list, I'll just sum up the story for you. Judges 19 verses 15 through 28 tells the story of a Levite man traveling with his concubine, which is basically like wifey without the title and the privilege, um, and his servant. 
So the entourage makes it to Gibeah, and they're posted up at the city square, but nobody takes them in until this old man returning from work in the fields comes across them and says, hey, where are you from? Where are you going? Turns out the entourage is from the same place this old man is originally from, and they're on their way home, just passing through, and they tell the man, look, nobody's trying to let us crash. We have food for us and for our donkeys. We don't need anything else, so, like, what's good? And the old man's like, you know what? I got you. Just don't spend the night here in the square. So they all went and the old man took care of them. And while they were out there having a good time in his home, the men of the city who were perverse surrounded the old man's house and started banging on the door, demanding that he let the traveling man out of the house so that they could have sex with him. The men of the city were trying to gang rape him. The old man was like, no, please don't do this wicked thing. Here, take my virgin daughters and the man's concubine. Do whatever you want to them, but please don't touch this man. But the townsman didn't listen to that old man. So the traveling guest threw his concubine out into the mob. They raped her all through the night. Until the morning. Bruh. I'm not even going to touch the ethics of what happened there. It's obviously a terrible story. All these men ain't shit, including the old man and his guest. But here's what News is saying. These two are the same story. And it's obvious that one influenced the other. Because Genesis comes before Judges in the Bible, people assume that the story of Lot and the angels in Sodom was written before that of the old man and his traveling guests in Gibeah. But News argues that Judges was actually written first and influenced Genesis. So while some people read them in order and conclude that the issue in these stories is homosexuality because the threat of a man raping a man is somehow far worse than a man actually raping a woman, News says that this take is absolute trash. But if you read the stories in order of origin, beginning with Judges and then moving on to Genesis, it becomes evident that the issue isn't homosexuality, it's actually rape. Because God ended up destroying the city of Sodom for its perversion, homophobes in the church have always maintained that this chapter of Genesis condemns homosexuality. But they conveniently ignore this account in Judges and the resulting consequences. Because of the crimes against the concubine, all the tribes of Israel got together and had a civil war against the tribe of Benjamin, which is where Gibeah was at. And not only was God cool with it, he actually said in verse 28, Go, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hands. It was a wrap before it even started. Benjamin was fucked. So when we read the stories in the order in which they were written, if Genesis 19 condemns homosexuality, then Judges 19 condemns heterosexuality. Some try to argue that Judges 19 actually condemns homosexuality because the men originally wanted to rape a man. But by that logic, the men would have suddenly turned straight in order to rape a concubine. And in Genesis 19, the text says it was all the men of Sodom who gathered to rape the angels. Not only have homosexuals always been a minority population, but also if all the men in the town were gay, literally there would have been no procreation to have even grown that population. In both stories, the victims, the concubine and the angels, were strangers to that land. When the men of Sodom were offended by Lot offering them his virgin daughters instead of the angels, they specifically expressed offense at him wanting to quote-unquote play judge in this situation, thinking that he could appease them with women. This implies that these straight men didn't just want sex, they just wanted to express their power and dominance over the visitors. The common denominator in these stories, then, is not homosexuality, but actually power rape, which is, quote, sexual violence for the purpose of degrading someone, and the sexual identity of that person is totally irrelevant. News explains that, quote, homosexual violation, usually by folk we would call heterosexual, in many societies is used to teach subordinates to slaves, trespassers, strangers, and newcomers to a community. He adds that these stories do not speak of sexual inclination. They are about sexual violence to obtain power over strangers. This kind of sexual violence still exists today, but in the ancient world, communities and armies used to dig down their enemies to show them who's daddy, pin down and penetrate them to prove who's more powerful. And they didn't only extend that courtesy to enemies in conquest, they also extended it to strangers and anyone who found themselves at the wrong place at the wrong time, according to those who lived there. 
If you stumbled onto the wrong block, you could get it. And it wasn't about sexual orientation. It was about humiliation and degradation. And because it wasn't about orientation instead of violence, claiming that the biblical condemnation of homosexual violence condemns all homosexual activity would require that all the biblical condemnation of heterosexual violence then condemn all heterosexual activity. Muse also explains that the sin of sexual violence here is compounded by a violation of the customs of hospitality of the time. In ancient Israel, travelers and strangers were to be taken in and cared for, and a host would have to protect their guests with their own lives. This was a huge moral obligation, and in upholding the principles of hospitality, a host had to be like Biggie. Thus, both the Sodomites and the Benjaminites gravely violated their moral codes in attempting to rape these guests. Uh, the context of these stories serves to create a contrast and highlight the dramatic differences in respect to this rule. In Genesis 18, the chapter directly before the attempted angelic rape, Abraham receives a visitation from the Holy Trinity and turns into a superhost like this is an Airbnb or something. And in Judges 19, just verses before the story of the Levite and his concubine, the concubine's father demonstrated great hospitality to his traveling son-in-law over the course of his three-day visit. That the major sin, aside from sexual violence, was the violation of hospitality customs is well supported in passages about Sodom throughout the rest of the Bible. News points to several examples. Isaiah 1 verses 9 to 10 and then 16 to 17 reads, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Here, the prophet Isaiah condemned the nation of Judah and compared them to the sinful cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But in prescribing what the people of Judah should be doing, he champions the plight of orphans, widows, and the oppressed, implying not only that these were victims of Judah's sins, but also that they too were the victims of Sodom's sins. There wasn't any reference about sexual activity. But these are all implications. The clearest passage about Sodom's sins, News argues, can be found in Ezekiel 16, verses 48 to 50, which reads, As I live, says the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. There you have it, clear as day, straight off the tablet of Ezekiel. Not only is there no mention of sexual sin or activity or orientation, but the prophet Ezekiel literally wrote that the sins of Sodom were pride, gluttony, and greed, while exercising indifference to those living in poverty among them. And Ezekiel wrote this as a messenger, on behalf of God, verse 48 reads, says the Lord your God. So how are we getting that specific, but there's not a single mention of gayness or gay sex or gay anything here, and people somehow want to argue that Team Limperist is the reason why Sodom was wiped off the face of the earth? Girl, please. These examples are found in what Christians call the Old Testament, but even the New Testament texts attribute Sodom's sin to its shitty hospitality. In warning his disciples that some towns would not welcome them with open arms as they attempted to spread the gospel, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 10, 15 and Luke 10, 12, that those who refuse them, as in those who refuse to be hospitable toward them, will suffer more than the Sodomites. News presents much more evidence, but for the purpose of the show, we gotta move because life does not begin at Genesis and end in Judges. Let's move on to Leviticus. Here, we're looking at Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13, the Levitical laws. So, Leviticus 18.22, You shall not give any of your offspring to sacrifice them to Melech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. 
You shall not have sexual relations with any animal and defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman give herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. It is perversion. Do not defile yourself in any of these ways, for by all these practices the nations I am casting out before you have defiled themselves. So listen, the condemnation of homosexuality here was placed between two verses that describe what the Canaanites did. The first is child sacrifice. In Canaanite culture, supposedly the firstborn of a family was to be offered up as a sacrifice on the eighth day after birth to ensure the continued fertility of the mother. In Israel, this was done for livestock, but some Israelites would actually sacrifice their own babies and theologians struggled for years to get them to stop. Um, and the other verse is about sex with animals. Apparently, the Israelites thought that other cults and cultures did this. A devotee might have sex with an animal that particularly represented a specific god in order to have communion with them. Men working on a farm might have sex with animals to satisfy their sex drive. Now, the cultural assumptions of that age would not have regularly attributed such behavior to women as routine activity. The fact that women are mentioned in particular makes it appear as if this is cultic activity uh, supposedly done by priestesses. So the point here is that the homosexual prohibition occurs between the two other laws that describe ritual practices. Verse 24 then declares that these are the practices of the people of the land. Now, whether or not the Canaanites actually did this doesn't matter, but that this was the Israelite viewpoint does. Including homosexuality here suggests that Israelites weren't describing general homosexuality, but cultic homosexual practices. That's also supported by the fact that the word for abomination, which is included here, was routinely used by Israelites to describe foreign behavior, especially cultic activity. If so, news concludes, then what is condemned by a homosexual prohibition is not general homosexual behavior, but cultic homosexual relations in particular. And a strong indication of this may be that it follows the prohibition of infant sacrifice and precedes reference to sex with animals by women. Noose then argues that if it does refer to simple homosexual behavior, then it's included in that list because it's a forbidden form of sexual activity, literally just because it doesn't lead to procreation. The Levitical sexual laws in general had their central focus on maximizing the reproductive capacities of ancient Israelites because they always faced chronic population shortage as a people. So it always condemned sexual activity that they viewed as a waste. And that's also why the prohibition against homosexual behavior follows a prohibition in verse 19 of avoiding sex with a woman during her period. Moving on to Leviticus 20 verse 13. Here we find a list of prohibitions condemning infant sacrifice, adultery, sex with close relatives, sex with animals, sex with a woman on her period, sex with a woman and her daughter, and other actions. And it's in that list in verse 13 that we read, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death, their blood is upon them. Noose's theory here is that Leviticus 20.13 is actually about cultic prostitution. The verse right after it condemns a man having sex with a woman and her mother. The Hittites, he explains, had a similar law that allowed sex with a mother and her daughter if the actions occurred separately at different parts of the country, but prohibited it if it occurred at the same location. Hittite laws apparently were very concerned with purity, and they forbid ritualistic behavior. So that sex with a mother-daughter duo was accepted in one instance but not in the other is a hint that this was viewed as cultic. The verse right after it prohibits men from having sex with animals, and the one that follows prohibits women from having sex with animals. But women in ancient Israel society are not thought to have regularly had sex with animals. Nobody would attribute such behavior to women as potentially routine activity so that this is explicitly called out when it wasn't regular behavior implies that it was cultic activity. Therefore, the homosexual prohibition here may not actually prohibit general homosexuality, but specifically cultic activity. 
According to news, Saul Olayan has studied these texts extensively and determined that they are in fact about anal intercourse. But Jerome Walsh has built upon that scholarly explanations and determined that while most people read man shall not lie with man as with a woman as addressing the active male partner or the top, it actually addresses the passive male partner or the bottom who takes on what should be the woman's role in lying with a man. Walsh argues that this was the intent behind Leviticus 18.22, and that Leviticus 20.13 expands on it and condemns both tops and bottoms in these situations to death. So, Noose establishes that Leviticus 18.22 is about bottoms, and that the law doesn't condemn general bottoming, only bottoming as a cultic behavior, for example, in worship or sacrifice to a god. The bottom in this case is a cultic prostitute. And since it doesn't condemn topping at all, not even the religious devotee in a cultic sex act, this suggests that there was something particularly blameworthy about cultic prostitution and that the latter law, Leviticus 2013, which condemns both tops and bottoms in cultic acts, was added in an attempt to get rid of the practice as a whole. Several texts in Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings refer to quote-unquote temple prostitutes and male temple prostitutes. For example, in 1 Kings 22:46, King Jehoshaphat of Judah exterminated the male temple prostitutes that his father King Asa didn't kill off in 1 Kings 15:12. News points out that female temple prostitutes dedicated to the goddess Asherah are also condemned, but nobody concludes from this that heterosexuality is being condemned. Conservative critics often overlook that point. And listen, whatever these individuals are, they are clearly cultic prostitutes. Their behavior is condemned because they are cultic prostitutes, not homosexuals in general. The sin is prostitution, not sexual identity. The sin of prostitution is made abhorrent in the mind of the biblical author because it is done as a form of worship, be it to Yahweh or another foreign deity. Let's get into the vice lists. All right, so there are two vice lists used by the church to condemn homophobia. Noose explains that vice lists are rhetorical devices in the New Testament that give moral advice to Christians by calling attention to the bad behavior of non-believers or to the bad behavior that Christians themselves might still have. Noose points out that vice lists usually have an interesting mix of horrific actions like murder and slave trade and more common everyday sin like greed and gossiping, and he suspects that this is done intentionally so that the horrendous sins can foil the seemingly trivial sins, implying that they are more grave than they sound and motivating Christians to want to overcome them. He writes, A vice list can sometimes use extreme examples of evil behavior to condemn the common sinful activities of everyone in order to declare that all sin is significant and requires repentance, forgiveness, and commitment. When it comes to condemning homosexuality, let's first look at the vice list in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, which reads as follows. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, and male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. First of all, notice how greed is thrown in there with seemingly more serious sins. That's exactly what Noose is talking about, giving it more weight as a sin by including it with the rest. But also, this text was from the New Revised Standard Version. Where this translation reads male prostitutes and sodomites, the English Standard Version, for example, reads men who practice homosexuality, and the New International Version reads men who have sex with men. That the NRSV reads male prostitutes and sodomites instead of just homosexuals as a catch-all suggests that there was a specific reason for using these terms and that it had to do with the actions and not just general homosexual behavior. The Greek word that was translated as male prostitute is malakoi, which literally means passive one or soft person. Biblically, the word literally means soft. It was used in both Matt and Luke to describe soft clothing. In Greco-Roman literature, it refers to men who wore makeup, dressed as women, shaved their bodies, or took on the passive role in sex. Uh, usually it was males who bought them for some coin, hence the translation male prostitute. It also referred to slaves who were used by their masters as bottoms. 
in Greek literature. It also could just mean general laziness, um, softness. It could mean a gentle breeze, literally a whole list of things. But either way, the point is that when it comes to these gay definitions, these weren't loving homosexual relationships. They were master-slave or adult-man-to-boy prostitute dynamics. The Greek word that was translated as sodomite was arsenokoitai, which literally means men who go to bed. The word seemingly wasn't used before Paul in Greek literature, and after him, Christian authors used it to describe general sexual activity. In fact, scholars found that it hardly was ever used to describe homosexual behavior. Still, the words arsenal for man and koiten for intercourse were used in the Greek translations of the Old Testament Levitical laws we just discussed, so those two words sort of held the same meaning for Paul. So if arsenokoitai is the top in a homosexual sexual dynamic, as was historically the case with the Jewish word for sodomite, then it likely was a word that in the ancient world described either older men who had sex with young boys or someone who sexually victimized poor folks like slaves or young boys. In any case, our equivalent for this word here would not just be man, but instead child molester or pedophile. When we put both words together, arsenokoitai and malakoi, we have the two words that describe the homosexual relationships that would have been observed most frequently by Paul. These noose rites were the master, old man, abusive sexual partner, or pederast on one hand, and the slave, young boy, or victim on the other. And that is why Paul pairs them in this sentence. They may be euphemisms for the active and passive participants in a sexual relationship, but ultimately they don't describe loving relationships between two adult free males. Listen, I don't know who needs to hear this. Actually, yeah, everybody needs to hear this. The text here is not condemning general homosexuality. It's literally condemning pedophilia. <laughs> Sexual abuse of youth by older men who had power and were usually well off. Can we talk about the irony? the disgusting and outright satanic scapegoat irony it is that the church for years has mistranslated and misused this text to condemn an oppressed minority, shoot, to influence that oppression in the first place, all the while abusing the trust they had as the supposed messengers and representatives of God here on earth, hiding behind their power and platform and the sacred name of God himself to secretly violate children, silence child victims, and then enable one another to continue their crimes? The fact that these people actively campaign against homosexuals and liken gays to pedophiles in nonsensical comparisons, um, the call is coming from within the house. The Houston Chronicle and San Antonio Express News uncovered two years ago a web of over 700 victims of sexual abuse by pastors, youth pastors, and other leaders of the Southern Baptist Church. The Boston Globe famously thrust the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal into the spotlight in 2002 and led to the uncovering of thousands and thousands of instances of child molestation by members of the Catholic Church. ProPublica in 2020 assembled the only national database of priests credibly accused of sexual assault and inaugurated it with over 6,700 names. Let me tell you something. 1 John 3.10 reads, This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Do you think these people are the children of God? I guess not. Hmm. And the other vice list that News explores is 1 Timothy 1 verses 9 to 10. It reads, This means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and disobedience, for the godless and the sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching. Here, the word that translates to sodomites is, again, arsenokoitai, which we established probably means pederast or pedophile. So this probably doesn't condemn general homosexuality. 
The word before it, which translates to fornicators, is actually the Greek word commonly used for prostitutes, and the word after it is slave traders. News argues that this is probably intentional because slave traders kidnapped and sold young boys as prostitutes to the pederists. That's all three groups involved. And that in any case, this is a condemnation of pederasty, prostitution, and sexual slavery. While the New Revised Standard Version translates each word with its specialized meaning, the King James Version and New International Versions purposely translate the words as homosexuals so that readers will quote their Bibles emphatically to condemn homosexuality. Tell me that's not fucked up. So when you think about who commissions and who pays for these expensive translations and how they influence how things are translated... You catch my drift. Now things are beginning to make a little sense. News also points out that, quote, the ancient world did not have our understanding of homosexual and heterosexual. In fact, he writes, the term homosexual originated only in the 19th century. Our understanding of homosexual will be somewhat related to their understanding of a bottom in a same-sex male relationship, which is frowned upon, while their understanding of a top would be more equivalent to our definition of a straight. So they believed that a powerful sexual male would have sex with both men and women, with animals too, if the situation arose. News writes, thus, both in the Assyrian armies of the 8th and 7th centuries BCE and in the Roman armies of the New Testament era, the soldiers would routinely rape male prisoners from armies that they had defeated in battle. This was a political statement of victory and total power over the defeated army. These armies did not only recruit gay men. This was power rape, and it did not define a soldier as homosexual in our sense of the word. The equivalent definitions of homosexual and heterosexual, if they even had anything like these notions, were altogether different from our own, which makes our use of these second testament passages inappropriate therefore what's being condemned here is the violent use of sex to degrade and humiliate people not sexual inclinations listen to add to that did you guys know that christian men in the early centuries after christ used to greet each other with full-on mouth kisses bro i'm so go google holy kiss i'm dead ass and that wasn't considered gay it was just a greeting so it's important that when looking at customs of different cultures and different times that you not project your own understanding of your own current culture because you'd be surprised at how different things were and how your views just don't apply and now last but not least the final text news explores romans 1 verses 26 to 27 this is paul's letter to the romans it reads claiming to be wise they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a moral human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons their due penalty for their error. People argue that this is a clear condemnation of male and female homosexuality, but conveniently ignore the for this reason part at the top of verse 26. The reasons referred to here as clearly stated in the preceding verses is the idolatrous worship of animals as gods. This is called theriomorphism. Basically, gods were presented as animals. In the Isis cult, of which there was a chapter in Rome, the Egyptian goddess Isis was portrayed as a human female, but her son Horus was a falcon, and um, there were other animals as well, like there was a lioness, a hippopotamus, Anubis is a dog, etc., etc. The Isis cult in Rome held very flamboyant, very prominent cultic processions. They had a bunch of really extra parades. News argues that Paul intentionally wrote this letter to make the Roman readers think of the Isis cult with which they were very familiar, and points to the animal references which conservative scholars often gloss over. 
In the ISIS cult, there were female priests who remained virgins and did not marry. Male priests practiced abstinence at least during festivals and ceremonies, although it was implied in ancient literary works that their abstinence was actually perpetual. And in a culture that was so obsessed with family, perpetual abstinence would have been morally disdainful and looked at as giving up natural intercourse with women. And where it reads that both men and women were instead in favor of intercourse with the same sex, that could be according to Roman gossip folk who suspected that the priestesses weren't really virgins and that the men weren't really abiding by the abstinence that they claimed to be. News writes, notice, however, that Paul does not say that the women directly loved other women. We assume that. What he says is that women gave up natural love for unnatural love, which could mean unusual sexual behavior with men or some other form of sexual behavior that does not procreate. We do not know for sure what he means. Some critical scholars have made a good argument that Paul is condemning non-coital heterosexual activity by these women. Essentially, these women could have been sucking dick and the Romans would have had a problem with it because it wouldn't have led to pregnancy. Anyway, back to the ISIS cult. Romans did not fuck with the ISIS cult. The ISIS cult was persecuted by leaders such as Caesar Tiberius who arrested, crucified, and expelled them from Rome. But the cult was gaining favorability in Rome at the time that Paul wrote this letter. News writes, thus, if Paul was writing this letter to the Romans, a group of folks that he had not visited yet, it would have been politic for him to condemn something as a form of immoral behavior that he knows most Romans did not like in the first place. That would be politic rhetoric on his part. Paul himself might have despised the ISIS cult for its similarities to Christianity, for it spoke of a god, Osiris or Serapsis, who died and was yet alive, the forgiveness of sins provided by ISIS and devotees who would experience immortality with Osiris in the afterlife. Thus, Noose writes, I believe that Paul is not condemning homosexuality in general, he is condemning the ISIS cult. Noose expands on this, he has a whole lot of research and a whole lot of references, but that's the gist of it. Now, in conclusion, you know what? Let me read what Professor Noose's conclusion was. I love it because it says what it needs to say and you get a feeling for who this guy is. It reads, In conclusion, I believe that there is no passage in the biblical text that truly condemns a sexual relationship between two adult free people who truly love each other. This, of course, does not settle the debate, for there still remain the views found in the history of the Christian tradition, the official pronouncements of church bodies, and the scientific discussion of gender identity. I cannot discuss those issues, but I would maintain that the biblical texts should not be called forth in the condemnation of gay and lesbian people in our society today. There are those voices today, especially among my college students and among intelligentsia in general, who declare that the Bible is an oppressive book because it supported slavery, and it still suppresses women and condemns gays. I say that this is not true whenever I have the opportunity. I try to teach the students otherwise. That is one of the reasons for writing this article. Maybe I am defending the Bible against its critics as much as I am defending the rights of gay and lesbian individuals. Boom. There you have it, folks. The Bible condemns pedophilia, sexual slavery, cultic prostitution, a whole mess of things. But homosexuality is not one. I said what I said. And I'm not changing on it, okay? It calls to mind those southern textbooks that teach that enslaved Africans migrated here for better working opportunities, bitch. What? Cut the cameras. Deadass. That deadass happened, remember, six years ago, this 15-year-old student pointed out that his McGraw-Hill published textbook had a section called Patterns of Immigration, which read that the transatlantic slave trade brought, quote, millions of workers from Africa to the southern United States to work on agricultural plantations, as if it was some kind of voluntary job, with no mention of the conditions slaves were subjected to. Obviously, it went viral. The publisher assured it was an editorial error, mm, yeah, okay, uh, and that it would be corrected, but what the fuck? 
That narrative is not only untrue, but it is so far from reality. And it's damaging because it removes all context for the atrocities black people faced not just back then, but to this day in the United States as a result of the transatlantic slave trade. And the Texas State Board of Education has a history of instances like this, including having listed Moses as a founding father and downplaying slavery as a reason for the Civil War. Imagine how things would have played out had this not gone viral. Had this actually been allowed to become doctrine in schools and gone to influence so many impressionable students for the rest of their lives. Now think of the Bible. The world's best-selling and most widely distributed book has had a massive influence on culture and policy globally. That the word of God has been mistranslated and manipulated and abused as divine orders to persecute LGBTQ plus people under the guise of holiness? This is absolutely the work of the devil, and these lies have had a lasting impact on individual lives and society as a whole. According to the Trevor Project, LGBT youth seriously contemplate suicide at almost three times the rate of hetero youth and are almost five times as likely to have attempted it. This country has seemingly become more accepting of homosexuality in the last decade, and yet 2021, according to The Guardian, is on pace to beat last year's record to be the deadliest year for trans individuals in recorded American history. Many of us forget that we live in a liberal bubble, that not everyone in this nation has it as easy as the white gay males do in Hell's Kitchen or in West Hollywood. And the outlook is perhaps even more abysmal when you look at other countries. Just a couple weeks ago, the Dominican Republic instated a new anti-discrimination law that does not include sexual orientation or gender as protected classes. The original text did include them, but they were removed in the version that passed. What that means is that now in DR, you can literally be denied a service, job, whatever, just because someone doesn't like it, you're gay. Not only that, but sexual orientation was removed as a reason to penalize aggravated homicide and torture. So niggas in DR really can just kill gays for no reason and absolutely get away with murder. In Uganda, anti-gay legislation was passed in 2014 in what was commonly known as the Kill the Gays Bill. I think that's self-explanatory enough. The anti-gay oppression in these nations has been influenced by the church, and it's a deep-rooted evil for which the enemy is responsible. As such, we must reject this oppression. We must reject the persecution of LGBTQ plus people, period. So it doesn't matter whether or not you're Christian. Wrong is wrong. But if you're going to try to hide behind God to do your dirt, you better think again. Because you're going to have to answer to God. And God is very clear that he wants to edify. I'm going to say it again. This message was to edify people who have been targeted by individuals and institutions who have abused God's name, the word, and the church as excuses for persecution. I said what I said. It ain't changing over here. Shout out to all the gay folks. Shout out to all the LGBTQ plus people. God loves you. God wants to edify you. This message is for you. I hope that you've been empowered with some information that you can take back to anybody. I hope that this has encouraged you to live your best life. And, you know, shout out to, you know, Team Riss's Bent. <laughs> It doesn't matter if Megan Fox was your sexual awakening or if your Transformers name would have been Fagatron, all right? God loves you, and I do too. Mwah.